Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What does the FBI know about UFOs? What about the CIA? Is the long-awaited disclosure about UFOs on the way? Well, welcome to the 627th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240. Uh, I'm not Ben. He's on his way. He's running a little late because of Valentine's Day. And those probing questions uh, were meant to introduce you to our guest, one of the most respected names in UFO research. And uh, he returns to the show now with some new information on a long-time topic. As always, we welcome your calls. It's 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Dr. Bruce McAbee is an American optical physicist formerly employed by the U.S. Navy and a leading UFO researcher, author, and speaker. We, rece- he, we received. He received his undergraduate degree in physics at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Mass., in our listening area here, and his master's and doctoral, de- doctoral degrees in physics from American University in Washington, D.C., in 1972, Dr. McAbee began his career at what was then the Naval Ordnance Laboratory in Silver Spring, Maryland. He has worked on optical data processing, underwater sound with lasers, and various aspects of the, of the Strategic Defense Initiative and Ballistic Missile Defense using high-powered lasers. He retired from government service in 2008. He now de- dedicates his time to UFO studies and his latest book, and the subject of our discussion today is the UFO-FBI Connection, the Secret History of the Government's Cover-Up. And you can see him all over the media. His website, uh, brumacbrewmac.8k.com, eight, eight, numeral eight I'll let him explain it later. And uh, before we bring him on, uh, Bruce, a happy anniversary today to you and Jan. Very good. Very it's just a Four years. Okay, great. How many years? Four years. Four years. Okay. You're a young man. Okay, uh, well, yeah. Bruce, uh, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. Uh, a shout out to anybody who might be at Worcester Tech listening. Cause I graduated there in 1964. Very good. Okay, so um, why don't we just begin at the beginning and uh, just tell us about the UFO FBI connection and where you got the information. Well, actually, the the new book is the FBI CIA UFO connection. Okay. Because uh, uh, initially published under the title you gave 16 years ago, but uh, new stuff has been added in a whole section on uh, my own direct interaction with the CIA, uh, which I couldn't really talk about when I wrote the original version. Okay. So anyway, um, the, the the book. The FBI-CIA UFO connection basically welds the uh, FBI and CIA documents to the Air Force intelligence documents uh, that came out. These uh, FBI documents came out in 1977, the CIA in 1978. There were other government agencies that also released documents over the few years. And in the middle 80s, the Air Force intelligence documents became available. And, and it wasn't until then that you could really write a good history of what happened in the early years, the, the information just wasn't available until all these uh, releases of information occurred. Uh, nobody in the late 40s and early 50s thought there was going to be a, uh, a Freedom of Information Act 20 years later, so they talked quite candidly as to what was going on. And uh, you get in the FBI file, 
some stuff that was generated by the Air Force that doesn't appear in the, in the files of Project Blue Book or the Air Force Intelligence. So anyway, uh, once I got all these files, I, I began <coughs> combining them to make a, a linear history, which uh, is in this book, the FBI CIA UFO Connection, and uh, demonstrates that uh, uh, the, Air, the Air Force knew what was going on and just intentionally didn't tell the people uh, as, as early as the late 40s and early 50s. And the, the most uh, striking example of this two-faced attitude of the Air Force, which was basically tell the people there's nothing to it, but inside we know there's something to it. You uh, have a document by the FBI on <clears throat> July 28, 1952, which, uh, which said that... Uh, um, top Air Force officials seriously consider the interplanetary explanation. But on that same day, the, the director of, of Air Force Intelligence, General John A. Sanford, held a press conference. Now, why would he do that? He held a press conference because there have been hundreds of sightings throughout the United States in 1952, starting in July, uh, or June, July of 1952, <clears throat> and there were so many sightings coming in that they had collected a couple of hundred sightings by the uh, end of uh, end of July. Uh, on one day, July 26th, I think it was, they had 50 sighting reports. 50. They're coming from all over the United States and all over the world. And of course, the ones that really made it big were the, the 19th and the, tw and the uh, 27th of July or 26th of July sightings over the uh, restricted areas in, the, in Washington D.C. in the White House. Uh, these sightings over the uh, restricted areas around Washington, D.C. caused a, uh, almost a panic in the press. And then there was an announcement that uh, the Air Force had been directed to shoot one down if they wouldn't land. And uh, nobody knew what the hell was going to happen. I'm sure they felt there was potential World War, uh, extraterrestrial World War Three or something like that was uh, about to occur with all these sightings going on hundreds and thousands of people re witnessing them. In, in, in my book, I publish a uh, number of the newspaper reports so you can see what was happening and uh, what was the lead-up to this press conference. Well, now, this whole th thing started in June of tw June 24th, June 25th of 1947 when Kenneth Arnold's sighting of the 24th of June was publicized in the newspapers on the 25th of June, 1947. And uh, it was during the newspaper people writing up their descriptions of what Arnold said he saw, that this phrase, flying saucer, came about. And after his sighting, there were more sightings that were occurring on a daily basis, plus sightings that had happened before he was, before his. Uh, Bruce, can I published. just interrupt you for a minute? That could you describe the Kenneth Arnold sighting for those who might not know what it is? Oh, uh, yes. The Kenneth Arnold sighting is <clears throat> very famous because it's, quote, the first sighting, unquote. The first one, you might say, is a part of the modern UFO phenomenon. Uh, in years since then, people have looked back into ancient history and found that uh, there have been sightings of stuff in the air uh, for thousands of years. But uh, this, is the, this is the first sighting that sounded like technology of some, uh, someplace. Kenneth Arnold was uh, uh, a guy with 4,000 hours of experience flying a small airplane, and he was a businessman uh, working in the Washington, Oregon area, and uh, he happened to be flying eastward 
at 4 o'clock or 4.30 in the afternoon flying eastward uh, with Mount Rainier on his uh, left front, sort of, and uh, he saw these shiny, silvery, semicircular objects come past Mount Rainier and go zipping on down, as he, wrote, as he said, along a hogback chain of mountains south of Mount Rainier all the way past Mount Adams. And he thought at first that there were some new Air, Air Force uh, jet-type aircraft. But he was puzzled that he couldn't see any wings, couldn't see any uh, engines, couldn't see any vertical stabilizers, no. Nothing at all that looked like an ordinary uh, airplane. Uh, so he thought, but nevertheless, he thought there was some new development. He wondered how fast they were going because they seemed to be going pretty fast. So he decided to time them. And he timed it 103 seconds based on a clock on his dashboard. 103 seconds to go from Mount Washington, or Mount, uh, Mount Rainier. Mount Adams, about 50 miles south, and that comes out to about 1,700 miles an hour. To gain a perspective on that speed, the uh, sound barrier was broken. Uh, so-called sound barrier was broken in October of 1947 at about 650, 700 miles an hour. So these objects were already going 1,000 miles faster than our fastest jets when uh, Kenneth Arnold saw them. Well, Arnold thought that they were some new development of the Air Force, and he talked about them to some friends who then told the press, and pretty soon the story was out that some new developments had been seen by uh, this guy, Arnold, and as soon as his paper, his article, was, as soon as his story was published, other sightings were reported. People had never reported them before because they didn't think, uh, didn't think much about them, uh, but uh, after his main news, international news, <clears throat> then other sightings came in, and by the uh, early July, uh, there had been a lot, a lot of sightings, including the so-called Roswell case, but that was squashed right off, so it really didn't play much of a role in the early history hmm. of this phenomenon. But there were so many sightings by Air Force people that the Air Force took an interest, and on the 10th of July, the Air Force contacted the FBI and asked, it's 1947 we're talking about, 10th of July, the Air Force contacted the FBI and said, would you please do some investigation to see if there's any communist subversion going on, that these, some of these reports, or maybe all of them, are generated by, uh, uh, by subversive people to make the American people think that the Air Force cannot control the skies and that the Russians are way ahead of us or something. So uh, Hoover said, uh, and in the book you can see the document where Hoover signed saying I would do it, but I first must require that we get access to all disks recovered. So for a couple of months, the FBI actually interviewed witnesses, and oddly enough, the security classification they gave for it was Security Matter-X. Security Matter-X, I call these the real X-Files. Hmm. You know, based on the, the TV show, The X-Files, I've been told that Chris Carter, who invented the X-Files TV show, did not know that there actually was security banner dash X was a classification used by the by the FBI, the real FBI. So anyway, the FBI, the Air Force Intelligence Connection was established at, at that point, and all the FBI got out of direct investigation in a few months. It, it acted like a black hole for information that the Air Force sent to the FBI. The FBI sent the Air Force information over the following years. And it wasn't thrown away. Congress had directed the uh, uh, 
headquarters of the FBI to never throw away anything. So when I wrote under the Freedom of Information Act in 1976, and then six months later got a bunch of documents, uh, that was the uh, first time that anybody had seen what was inside the FBI file um, for, for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the uh, main point is establishing this connection between the Air Force and the FBI. And there's considerable interaction over the following few years between the two. And that's all just laid out in the book. But then you get to this big year in 1952, which might be called the year of the UFO, where there was hundreds of sightings over a couple of months and the sightings over the White House, and uh, which led the, cheer, the, the chief of staff of the Air Force, General Vandenberg, to direct the director of intelligence, General Sanford, to hold a press conference and basically get the press off our back. And so at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I think it was on the 28th of July, uh, Sanford had his press conference. On that same day, uh, FBI sent a uh, liaison guy to the Air Force Intelligence to find out what was going on with all these flying saucer reports, what really is happening. Now, Samford was telling the general public and the press that, uh, so far as he was concerned, it was all natural phenomena and that the uh, radar detections that had occurred over the White House area in Washington, D.C., were due to uh, weather phenomena known as the temperature inversion affecting the radar. So it was all nothing to it, basically. But the uh, FBI man who went to interview one of the people who has worked in Aunt Semper's office was told that 2 to 3% of the sightings absolutely could not be explained. Multiple witness, multiple channels of information type of sightings could not be explained. And that some top Air Force people were seriously considering interplanetary ships. Uh, I have General Sanford has said at the press conference, oh, yes, we're seriously considering interplanetary ships. It would have blown the lid off. But it didn't, he didn't say that. He covered it up. And that sort of nailed the lid on the coffin of UFOs, and the press went away happy. And uh, from then on, the whole subject's been sort of treated like a silly season joke. Mm-hmm. In 1952, uh, and we are, especially our friend Frank Faschino has written a lot about this, uh, as, as, as you say, the year of the UFO, Bruce. Now, in, that, in, in these documents, is there anything about one of the most controversial questions about 1952, uh, engagements between Air Force uh, fighter jets and UFOs and the supposed loss of at least one or two American Air Force pilots in the course of these engagements? Is there any information about that in these documents? I have not seen any direct information. The uh, newspapers carried stories that um, the Air Force had directed their pilots to shoot down one of these things. Yeah. On the uh, uh, 20, 24th or 25th or something like that of July, the story came out that the Air Force had, been directed, had directed their pilots to shoot one down if it didn't land. But um, there's nothing in the documents indicating that they actually did shoot something down. Okay. But had they done that, it probably would have been far beyond the classification of uh, uh, these communications uh, between the FBI and the uh, You you might find this interesting. Uh, I've mentioned this to Frank when he's been on the show, but uh, I was born in 1953, of course, the year after all this supposed it was going on. 
and I was born in um, in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, and one of the next towns over was Glastonbury. And in, in 1952, there had been a very mysterious crash of an Air Force plane. Uh, supposedly, it had run out of fuel and had crashed in the woods in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And uh, But there was a huge fire, which would not happen if the plane didn't have any fuel, because that's what ignites, right? Uh-huh. So uh, the kids, years later in, in our area, because Glastonbury, this was maybe five or ten miles from where I lived, we're still talking about this, and they said a flying saucer had shot down the plane. Again, this is kids, but what, what, what are the? You, you never know when you should listen to children. I, I, I always do because Ben, when he was young, we'd go on cases, not necessarily UFO cases, and kids would tell him stuff they wouldn't tell the grown-ups. So uh-huh. I just—that's why the whole year intrigues me, uh, you know, as, as you describe it, because um, I remember that as a kid. So that's just—that's just a story from my distant past. As I said, there were there were literally hundreds of hundreds of sighting reports over. I think yeah. during that year, the Air Force collected more sighting reports than any year before or, or since. Wow! And most of those sighting reports that year came in June, July, and August. Uh, that's why I call it the year of the UFO. And I have long said that if we really understood what happened in the first five years between forty-seven and the end of fifty-two, we would know probably eighty or ninety percent of what's going on with this UFO phenomenon. With these documents uh, you obtained, the biggest thing, the biggest, the biggest thing that was new as time went on was the the uh, abduction stuff starting in the late fifties. Really, I was going to ask you. Well, uh, let's get a little closer today, and what what recent information is there? And you mentioned abductions. That that's a big topic. So go ahead. Well, there is a document in the FBI file that would be considered to be an abduction report. Uh, the late Philip Glass always made a a point to notice, note that uh, uh, the FBI uh, is responsible for investigating human abduction. If somebody is kidnapped, we call it kidnapping. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so what was the? But the FBI never interviewed, never uh, investigated a so-called alien abduction or alien kidnapping. And there, and he used that as evidence that there was therefore nothing to abduction. But in fact, there is a uh, document regarding. Uh, uh, what would be considered a, a alien abduction event uh, in 1966 or 67, I believe, where a guy calls into the FBI at 4 o'clock in the morning to report he lives at Chesapeake, Virginia, on the, uh, Chesapeake Bay, and uh, he calls the FBI headquarters to report that he was closing up his shop uh, at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, and... Uh, saw some strange, strange object land with creatures, and then he couldn't remember where he was between then and uh, the time that he called up the FBI. So this document looks like it was, a, as I said, it would be interpreted as a typical UFO abduction report with missing time. And what did the FBI do? They checked out to see if the guy had a criminal record. He didn't have one, so they just closed the case right there. Really? They didn't do a thing about it, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I just, as a bit of an aside, I remember, and this is by way of a, introducing levity to a grave subject, I suppose, but I remember when I was younger, there was a, um, a, a spoof in, in a certain magazine, uh, a spoof on the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I'm sure most people have, have seen that. And when, when they land in uh, the Devil's Tower, I guess it's in Wyoming, 
there are they they release a number of people they'd abducted over the years, and there were the the time Einstein, you know, time kind of thing, you know, they had an age and all this business. Well, in the spoof, um, the FBI is present at this um, meeting of the aliens and the humans. And they immediately step up and arrest uh, the aliens on a number of federal charges, including larceny over $500 and kidnapping, fraud, FAA violations. It was really quite funny. But I, I can't imagine, I'm sure in the documents there's nothing of that kind in the FAA, no uh, federal charges being considered against whoever this is. Nobody's trying to capture the aliens yet. Right. <laughs> Okay. Um, let, let me ask, um, are there any other major cases that the casual UFO aficionado might know about that are referred to in the documents? And how recent do these documents get? Well, most of the FBI documents are, uh, all of them are before the end of the, uh, end of the 70s. Uh, okay. I don't know if the FBI has collected anything since then. I guess I haven't written. Uh, well, there's a certain period uh, before they declassify things, anyway. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. All right, uh, now here's the big well, question. When Carter came, when Carter came in to, to uh, well, when he was running for president, when Carter, Jimmy Carter was running for president, he promised to release all the UFO information. And when he became president in um, what 1976 or 77, when he took over the job. Uh, he asked Jody Powell and maybe some others to do a search. And sure enough, there's a letter in the FBI file from Jody Powell asking if the FBI is doing anything on UFOs. And the FBI says there's no reason for it to be for us to be doing anything on UFOs. Uh, the fact that the FBI was involved was unknown to anybody, probably. The first person to know it was probably the, uh, uh, the guy who did the search at my request. I was probably the first person outside the FBI to know that the FBI had, well, 1,600 pages of UFO stuff. Okay. Well, Carter, I'm, I'm thinking uh, when he was governor of Georgia, was uh, made, I believe it was two official UFO sighting reports? Uh, I know of one. I don't know about two. Okay. Well, in any case, you know, a future president who reported that was is quite interesting. Now, here's the big question of of the uh, the show here, Bruce. People really don't trust the government anymore. Okay, can't imagine why. But if this if these documents uh, have been released uh, even under the Freedom of Information Act, are you sure, or, or what evidence do you have that these are legitimate? documents and, and that they haven't been just given to people to be to fulfill the law and, and they're not really accurate i mean what, what do you think about that subject well um somebody faking fbi documents and then releasing them on the free nation unless the fbi is sounds uh, uh, somewhat bizarre and furthermore the way these things these documents read uh somebody would have to come up with a whole history make it fit with the known history of uh, stuff in newspapers and so on. Okay. Uh, it would be a very difficult, time-consuming, and you'd have to have some reason to do it type of situation. All right. Remember, when, when these documents were generated, supposedly nobody knew there was going to be a Freedom of Information Act. So the documents are written, the documents written in 47, 48, 49, 50, sound like they are from that time period, uh, rather than somebody in the 70s writing documents that he thinks would correspond to the 40s and 50s. Okay. 
Well, we have uh, guests uh, such as Steve Bassett, and he, he is a, a, a real crusader for disclosure, in other words, for the government to release what it knows about UFOs. But we, we go round and round sometimes on the show. I said, suppose, Steve, that what the government knows is, is so horrifying and that this is not what people think it is and that it's really negative and that our whole species is in danger or something like that. Um, maybe that's why these things are kept secret. And he said, well, I don't care. I want to know. So, Bruce, what is your opinion on disclosure, what there may be to be disclosed beyond the documents you've mentioned, uh, and uh, what the implications might be? I mean, what do they really know that they're not saying, you know, beyond, as I say, the documents you've mentioned? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, I, in my book I have, connected the dots, so to speak, based, and the dots are based on uh, information that is available. Formerly, some of it is formerly classified, some of it isn't, but the, the, the dots are information that is available. Okay. There's also another whole section of uh, ufology that revolves around uh, the absolute proof in the form of crashed objects and bodies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I have not tried to even use that material in the book, although I re- mentioned it right up front, that, uh, quite likely, in my opinion, that Roswell is true. But what I do is I make my case based on documents that anybody can get a hold of. And then reading the history and doing a little bit of a, an analytical analytical history, you might say, you come up with a conclusion that the Air Force knew what was going on in the late 40s or early 50s. Okay. Because I'll have to stop you there because we're going to take our break. We'll come right back to that, and we'll okay. give you a chance to talk about your book. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful but rather chilly zero degrees at the moment, Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Romeo Berthiam inviting you to join me every Saturday morning from 6 to 9 for the Saturday Show. This all-request program includes music, news, sports, weather, and all sorts of community announcements. And what a great way to start your weekend. Join me this Saturday morning. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. Okay, that was quick. We're back with our mar- marvelous guest, Bruce Maccabee, a uh, local connection here. With uh, He's a New Englander. He lives in Vermont, and he is a graduate of, Rensler, uh, of the Worcester Polytech. And uh, we're very glad to have him with us. Now, uh, we're talking about the Freedom of Information Act and the UFO-CIA-FBI connection, subject of of, uh, Bruce's latest book. Bruce, tell us about your book, your website, where people can find out more. Well, let me uh, finish what I was talking about before. Well, good idea. Okay. I better behave myself. The crash, crash, disks, and bodies, in other words, Roswell. As I mentioned before, I based my book on uh, analytical history, you might say, combined with physics where necessary, in order to demonstrate that the Air Force knew things were going on, uh, knew this was all real stuff in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, but now the next question is, how do you fit in the Roswell and uh, abductions and all that? And uh, that doesn't turn up in the documents very much, unfortunately. Uh, but I suspect that Roswell actually happened, a, a real crash of some strange object. And, of course, then the question is, uh, they have the absolute proof 
what are they going to do with it, how are they, they going to react. And one way right off the bat, of course, has been to some of the, uh, the first thing they would think of is, well, this is tremendous technology for weapon use, and uh, so we're going to cover it up. We don't, we got, we've got a crash chaucer. We have access to all the technology of the crash chaucer, if we can understand it. We don't want our enemies to get one, so we'll pretend we don't have one either. That won't give them an added, added incentive to get a hold of one. And furthermore, the, we'll, we'll tell everybody that there's nothing to the whole subject, and that'll, we hope, keep the uh, enemies, i.e. the Soviets in that case, uh, off guard, and they won't pay any attention while we're re reverse engineering everything we can out of the Roswell crash. Now, I've read a lot of stuff about people theorizing as to what we've learned from reverse engineering, back engineering, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I, I don't know. There's been testimony, point claims that uh, infrared devices and uh, lasers and uh, all, all sorts of stuff that has been developed under nor what I would call normal progression of physics type of ideas. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff that's normal. Under normal progression of physics, that has nevertheless been claimed to derive from, from Roswell or other crashes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just don't prefer not to get into that argumentation. That's why I base my book on stuff information that anybody can get a hold of if they use the Freedom of Information Act correctly. Okay. All right. So why don't you take a moment now before we burn up this hour to talk about your book and your website and where people can find out more about you and where they can get the book. Well, I actually have two books out. Okay. The FBI CIA UFO Connection, which is a, and you might say analytical history, and it also includes my own direct experience with the CIA, how I got involved. Uh, the fact that I was doing work for the Navy was a type of work generating underwater sound with lasers that was of interest to the uh, FBI, to the CIA, because the CIA was tracking Soviet work on that, and uh, they. They called me up and said, can you tell us what it's all about, how far along you are in technology, and so on. And then, uh, for reasons I describe in the book, uh, they found out that I also was interested in UFOs. And uh, they, uh, I, I gave a couple of lectures at the, at the CIA headquarters on UFOs, and I actually wrote a briefing for the President's Science Advisor, John Gibbons, who was the Science Advisor, to Clinton in, uh, in uh, early 1993. And I was asked to write a uh, briefing for him, which I did, and uh, that's in the book. But I have another book called Abduction in My Family, which is unlike any other UFO book, maybe unlike any other book in the literature, because it's a novel wrapped around a fact book. The fact book, is, you could cut the fact book pages out, paste them together, and have a uh, reference book on UFOs history of UFOs, uh, and analysis of UFO sightings, how to do sighting investigations and stuff like that is all in this fact book. But this novel, uh, the fiction part, is also based on uh, what abductees claim happened to them. And uh, there's a story where the main character in the book has, figures he has to know something about UFOs in order to do what he wants to do in the book. And so he goes to the library and gets a book called What You Should Know About Unidentified Flying Objects. And he starts reading. And this is the fact book in different print, different print type or different type, and different sort of writing. Uh, and uh, he reads the book, and you, of course, as a reader, read right along with him. And by the time you get finished, you're 
somewhat of an expert on the subject. Okay, excellent. All right, and what's your website again? I kind of muffed it at the beginning, I think. B-R-U-M-A-C, brumac, dot, eight, K, number eight, letter K, dot com, brumac, dot, eight, K, dot com. Very good. I'm also on Facebook. That's right, where we are friends. Okay. Also, um, we have a question from a listener, uh, Wayne Barber, who uh, I had the pleasure of meeting yesterday, and he's a fellow broadcaster. And Wayne asks, uh, any investigations in Rhode Island or Cape Cod around the military base? Well, if you're talking about over the whole 60 years or so, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but I'm not particularly aware of them. Okay, but nothing in the documents that you're aware of? No, nothing that I... Okay. Now, getting back to the subject of disclosure, um, many people feel that films such as Close Encounters, which we've mentioned, and and other films coming up through the years to today uh, are sort of feeding information to the public or are preparing us for some sort of revelation. I mean, frankly, I think Hollywood just wants to make money, and that's a big topic. I mean, but what do you think? I mean, is it... I suppose it's not impossible that, that uh, feeding information to the public could occur through, that, through those media. What do you think? Well, uh, we almost got into this disclosure discussion, and I broke it off sort of and talked about Roswell, because the yeah. disclosure depends on what they have, what information is available uh, to the people who have the hard, what you call the hard evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you only had soft evidence, you could wonder about what, what disclosure would be. But the, the real problem occurs when you get uh, so hardware and bodies, shall we say. Okay. And uh, uh, now it might be that all the all the aliens have died and we have no way of knowing what they were here for. Or it could be, and there have been certainly been rumors and stories about one or more aliens being kept alive in certain places and uh, uh, getting a... Uh, communication going at some level, in which case the aliens might have told uh, the uh, people, the the captors, as it were, uh, what they're doing here. But then you have to ask yourself, would we believe them if they told us? Uh, Because we have nothing to compare their their truth value with ours, shall we say. Okay. Uh, I don't know what uh, they might have learned from the aliens, but if it's something like they're going to eat us, the uh, old uh, serving man, uh, t- Twilight Zone solution to the question: What, what are they doing here? <laughs> uh, well, what, we may we may laugh. Would the, would, the Air Force, would the Air Force tell anybody if they're going to eat us? In my abduction book, uh, I propose that they're uh, trying to do create hybrids or adapt themselves to our civilization, and I discuss. Uh, case uh, from Gulf Breeze, Florida, where a guy uh, effectively acted as a uh, learning device for a group of, t- of small versions of the aliens, uh, according to uh, what he uh, uh, recalled under hypnosis and so on. Oh, this is during an abduction experience. Yeah. A lot of argumentation over whether or not any of this information makes any sense. But there have been uh, a lot of experiences now have done things like this and uh, I my own opinion is that abductions are real mm-hmm. whether they 
occur exactly as the witnesses say, whether the aliens do what the witnesses claim they do, so on, uh, is up for grabs. Uh, right. Because if you're in an altered state of mind, do you remember things accurately? Uh, yeah, I, I tend know. to agree. Uh, one, one of the issues that, that we're always harping about on this show is that um, are we interpreting all this according to our limited human epistemological paradigm? In other words, are, are we interpreting these things just from the viewpoint of what we know, which is really very little, if anything? And a number of questions arise from this. Then these, these are questions we pose to many eminent guests such as yourself. Uh, are these really nuts and bolts craft from other planets? You know, probably, but there are lots of other possibilities. Uh, because nothing that we've ever found in the paranormal is what it appears to be, and the paranormal would include UFO research. In my own experiences with poltergeists, uh, particularly <coughs> some really knockdown, drag-out cases, where there were entities present, they came across to me as alien in every sense of the word. Now, whether that means other planets or whatever, I mean, th that's an open question. But these were not spirits or things that the spiritualist approach uh, would, would, uh, would accept. And then the big question, what constitutes evidence? I mean, we, we have a scientific method, which in my opinion is not adequate. It, it will describe things, but it will not define reality. In, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm a philosopher by education. So uh, well, what do you think of all this? I mean, are, are we being too narrow in our interpretation of what these beings are, if that's what they are, and, and what, what the craft may be? And before you answer, I would point out uh, some of the observations of Ted Phillips, who is a, a well-known fellow from Missouri who has spent a lifetime gathering physical evidence for UFO landings. And even he says the nature of these things is becoming seemingly less material and more almost ethereal, as in balls of light, as opposed to craft with legs and you know nuts and bolts and all. So all these questions, I think, are, are open. And what say you, Bruce? How many hours have you got? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> only about another ten minutes. Yeah. Well, I'm reminded of a case in the middle middle fifties of a guy out in the woods, and I think on the southern South Carolina or Georgia or someplace, I forget. He's got a gun with him, and he's out hunting, and he's one of these things approaching him, and he looks up at it and sees a big monster object up above the treetops. Fires his gun at it, and the bullet goes careening off. Sounds pretty solid to me. And uh, they certainly have, one of the cases that I've looked at, uh, have some physical effects on the, uh, on the surroundings and uh, seem to be, Solid something or others, whatever is going on. Mm -hmm. But um, in, in my abduction book, I could also t tackle the, the uh, or in a certain way, tackle the, the follow-on question is, granted that these things are real, what are we going to do about it? And I put this on a very personal level. Uh, what are you going to do if you find if you just finally decide, well, they're real, they're here, they're messing around, do whatever they want to do. Shall I head for the hills, or shall I realize that they can get me in the hills, too? What am I going to do? And, uh, I, I hope that in the last chapter of the abduction book, Abduction to My Family, I get people to start thinking about this uh, ultimately crucial question, is the rea our, reaction to, uh, our reaction to the realization, if disclosure happens, but then what? And uh, yeah. I find that the, the more I try to look at the alien, the more I see ourselves. Interesting. 
Why don't you talk some more about that? Well, what, what, you, you still have to answer, answer for yourself after thinking about it. Yeah. What would be your, your reaction? Are you going to uh, go to the liquor store and buy more liquor? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bud Hopkins used to say something like, if, if this were true, I'd, be, I'd rather be in the liquor business than in the uh, art business or something like that. Uh, is it going to affect the stock market? Is it going to affect the defense industry? Is it going to affect uh, the whole economy? Uh, yeah, everything is about bucks. It's, it's, easy, it's easy to think of things falling apart once people really take into heart the idea that these creatures are flying around doing whatever they want to do, whenever they want to do it, and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah. Well, let, let me go you one better, Bruce. Um, we have been, we being my son Ben and myself, uh, have been investigating for the past 10 years what we refer to as flap areas, areas of intense seemingly unrelated paranormal activity uh in most of, and in most of these areas the um, military has shown up at one point and we're thinking of, you know right down to people's houses you got ghosts and poltergeist activity in the, in in the classic sense you've got ufo's uh, that are very public public changes in behavior uh bigfoot sightings all in relatively concentrated areas at the same time but people don't talk to each other about this so a lot of people don't realize it and why is the military involved? Well, our particular evidence that we have from our research, you know, for what it's worth, is that maybe they're, they're very concerned about the whole uh, parallel world situation as some quantum physicists will describe it. And, and they don't like people like me who have a degree in something else and run with the idea. But I, I can't think of any better explanation for what we see, for the physicality of it all. And I think that might be the big secret. I think we're all used to the idea of the Klingons and, uh, you know, other people from other planets, and we'd all be kind of intrigued, as long as they're far away. So, you, so I, I think you've got a point that if they're flying around doing whatever they want, that's different. But if they're far away, we discover, li- fine, life like ourselves. But what about life as we don't know it, and it might be coming from possibly the, these rather permeable membranes or brains as physicists might say, of parallel worlds. That's what we see for what it's worth. What say you? I left you speechless. Yeah, yeah, you left me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, all right. Um, Why don't you think about it for another show? <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Because we see these overlaps. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, I'm working right now consulting with a number of uh, very prominent names whom you would know in the UFO field who say, well, gee, you know, uh, the, the people who had the sighting or the, the abduction are now having poltergeist phenomena in their homes and are now seeing, you know, red eyes looking out from under their furniture, you know, things that we would run into in poltergeist slash tulpa cases, okay? So that's the reason for the question, perhaps a broader uh, view of this, and that's why, much to our surprise, we're being asked to speak at, at UFO conventions in the past few years. And people are, you know, just just to present the ideas as uh, maybe this is this is possible. So uh, that leads into the question of um, what do you see as the future of UFO studies? Where does it go from here? What what have we really learned, and where does it go from here, Bruce? Well, I think. Uh at the very least, we learned that there, there really is something going on. 
that's affected uh, a large fraction of the population of the world uh, directly as uh, direct sightings. Uh, unfortunately, as time goes on, we get more and more noise added in, fake sightings and misidentifications and so on uh, that uh, tend to make make it difficult to determine what's real and what isn't. But uh, I, I think we're really riding along on whatever they, in quotes, uh, released us. Uh, I long felt that uh, by the time when, when more than 50% of the population, some 60 or 70 or whatever percent of the population, uh, are witnesses, direct witnesses, not, not fakes, not misidentifications, but direct witnesses to the real phenomenon. And somebody will stand up and say, hey, it's real. And everybody else will say, you're up, it's real. And the government will say, well, we've known it all along, but we couldn't tell you. Uh, because of whatever the uh, consequences are of the reality. And uh, until we get that sorted out, we really just sort of run in place, I guess. Hmm. Uh, okay, it can be frustrating. Stuck, stuck with the, the, dis- the disclosure, uh, depending on what the disclosure is, uh, assuming there is one, uh, then we have to decide what we're going to do. But up until that point, all we can do is think generate scenarios that uh, correspond to what the disclosure tells us. Uh, are they here to be our friends? Uh, well, in my abduction book, I point out we have to figure out if we, if we face uh, love, hate, or indifference, or indifference. If you go way back to the beginning of the human race and say, well, they made us, then they probably love us. They're not going to hurt us. If, on the other hand, they came from the outside somewhere and uh, they want the earth, to live on and they don't want us around they might hate us and it uh, could be bad for us yeah. and there's indifference which is they're going to do whatever they want to do they don't care what the reaction is to us and they're not directly not directly hurting us but on the other hand they aren't helping either they're just doing whatever it is they want to do well this leads into another question that we've talked about disclosure uh, the, the exopolitics movement as it is called and as I understand that it is uh, operating on the assumption, uh, I think, that we and these, whoever these are, and you know, wherever they may come, however, however many different kinds there may be, that they might think of us as more or less equals, or at least worth talking to. And um, th- this this would be the exopolitics idea that we would be able to negotiate or whatever with them. At least that's as I understand it. I mean, I think that is extremely naive and narrow i mean what what why would we think we would be up to negotiating or or in any way having uh you know not necessarily being victims i mean nobody really knows but what do you think about the, this, this exopolitics idea i mean could we expect to be treated as equals by any of these species or whatever they are and wherever they come from and and uh whatever technology they may have i mean what, what do you think well, first of all, I think uh, I've long thought since the term generated, that exopolitics is probably necessary. Just that I don't uh, necessarily agree with or believe in some of the exopoliticians <laughs> yeah. who are going around. Now, Bassett seems to be a pretty straight guy. Yeah, he's, and, he is. He's, uh, a, he's a hero in my opinion. I don't agree with him, but he's a hero. He's, whether he's going to succeed in, in pulling the guts of this out away from the uh, cover-up, I don't know. But uh, I think exopolitics is going to be 
something we have to have in our back pocket available in, in case it's, use, it's useful. Like you said, it may not be useful no matter what. Uh, yeah. But again, it depends on what the information is. It all goes back to things like what they learned from Roswell or other crash uh, discs or bodies, creatures, whatever. Um, uh, if, they're, if, they're, if they've learned something that's really detrimental to the human race, I can understand why they would keep it quiet and uh, try yeah. to cover it up. Uh, well, delay, yeah. delay the Armageddon or apocalypse as long as possible. But if it's inevitable, then I suppose we have to know about it sometime. Well, I, I uh, tend to agree with Stanton Friedman, the, the well-known researcher, uh, when, with his statement that, um, in so many words, the quote would be, uh, the, um, we, we are essentially a uh, species whose primary activity is tribal warfare. Why would they want to talk to us? You know, so, right. you know, I, but as far as what we're dealing with, I guess you perhaps agree with us, we, we really don't know for sure. And Michio Kako says if we walk past an anthill, we don't try to explain to the ants what we're doing. Yeah, well, there you go. Ex- exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, what does the future hold for you, Bruce? What, where, what is your next step? Are you working on another book? Uh, where is your research taking you? Well, I'm trying to sell my books right now, of course. Yeah, aren't we all? Uh, I have another one coming out, which uh, will be the testimony of a retired lieutenant colonel who whose testimony by itself would blow the lid off if you could prove that it were true, of course. It's a, a very interesting, uh, long narrative, and I, I hope that will be out sometime in the summer. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I keep track of what's going on on the Internet. Uh, just recently, like yesterday or the day before, somebody posted a, a snowboarder guy posted a video of a, snow, of a, a selfie going down a hill, and this video shows him his shows his, the front of him, and it shows what's going on behind him, and something appears up in the sky, a, a blue sky, not too far from where the disk of the sun is. It's clearly not a lens flare, though. This is a, a bar or a rod-shaped, dark something or other, clearly a, a opaque object of some sort. Yeah, I think I saw that. Move as he's yeah. going down the hill, and uh, he, he said he, he got the video several years ago, and it wasn't until he looked at it carefully noticed this thing it looked to him like something was hovering up there watching him go down the hill he says he didn't think it was a helicopter because he didn't hear one but on the other hand he had earphones on and was listening to music or something like that um, anyway I, I analyzed the uh, uh, very cursory analysis showing that the object shrinks in size as he goes down the hill which is what you'd expect for a real object Mm-hmm. The image would shrink for a real object up there, not moving and him uh, getting farther and farther away from it. So it's an, it's an opaque thing. It's, long, it's a sort of a bar-shaped object with a fatter one end. Looks to me like it could have been a helicopter. And I'll stand by that unless somebody come up, comes up with some good reason why it couldn't be. Well, as an as an so expert who has worked in that field for the Navy, uh, I think what you say has great weight. Uh, that's the type of thing that I do. Uh, as a photo analyst, I analyze photos. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. I hope to save 15% on it each time I do it. Okay, excellent. Okay, Bruce, I guess <laughs> we're, just ab- commercial. Okay, we're, just, we're just about out of, t- out of time here. And thank you for a fascinating discussion, as always is, and we'll be in touch off the air, and we're going to plan some more shows. 
Okay, thank you for inviting me. Thank you again. Dr. Bruce McAbee, everybody. Uh, Check out his his website and his books. Okay, so let's um, get to our announcements here. We have quite a few. We wanted to uh, thank the staff and the folks at the uh, Cumberland Public Library here in Rhode Island uh, yesterday. Very, very interesting uh, afternoon. Uh, They had an author's... Uh, and Readers uh, Expo, at which uh, I was present. Uh, ben wasn't there because he's not an author yet. He will be next year. And it was great to meet some of our local listeners there. A number of people came out uh, who'd heard the uh, announcement on the show, and it was great to uh, to meet them. Now, uh, our next event, uh, April 8th and 9th, uh, we'll once again speak at the New England Parafest at Ashworth-by-the-Sea in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. We are the final speakers of the event. I guess that's supposed to be good. And they have our subject as the truth behind the paranormal, but we'll be talking a great deal about the paranormal parasites we sometimes refer to. Uh, then on July 23rd and 24th, that's a bit out there, but not as far away as you might think, uh, we'll be at the Connecticut Paranormal Convention in Windsor Locks. We will present on Saturday, and on Sunday we will host the weekly edition of this show with a panel of all the speakers before a live audience. First time we will have been able to do that, and our new Sunday slot makes that possible because I'll be staffing here at the station for that to occur. I'm looking at our producer, Josh, here. Uh, find out more about the show, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, one of the top websites in the world for visits and use, so we're told. Also at that site, you'll find over 650 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. You can find my books on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook. Those include Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. And something of total disinterest to most of this audience, I guess, Rhode Island Genial History, which is about, and I joke that I, I uh, write about the paranormal as, as a professional writer, paranormal history and the uh, construction, residential construction trades on the East Coast. So... If you are a contractor working in a historic haunted house, I'm your guy. All right. Also on our website, you will find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including USA Cares and Veter- Canadian Veterans Advocacy. All right. Okay. And uh, we were looking at it for time. Oh, oh, gee. Okay. Well, I'm just going to go straight to our quote. Next week, uh, we're going to have Jason Jarrell on the subject of giants. And uh, an old and dear friend of mine sent me a quote just before the show that is relevant to Valentine's Day, and it is absolutely fantastic. Let's take a look at that. Uh, there is an icon, or a Greek Orthodox icon, of St. Valentine. It says, Roses are red, violets are blue. I was beaten with clubs, beheaded, be- buried under the cover of darkness, disinterred by my followers, and you, you commemorate my martyrdom by sending each other chocolates. A rather backhanded compliment to this holiday. So we'll see you next week. It's Behind the Paranormal. I'm Paul Eno, and thank you for joining us on our great cosmic journey. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.